Well, prophets. So what do we do with the prophets? Uh, Our culture loves to talk about prophets as long as it relates to money and the excess of income over expenditures. But that's a different kind of prophet, as we know. Uh, We're also often not sure of exactly what to do with what we read from the prophets in the Old Testament. They say weird things. They say harsh things oftentimes. They say that to the people of Israel and to the people of Judah as a divided kingdom in the north and south, and they speak to the kings and the people, and they oftentimes say things that we don't fully understand. Not only are they weird things but that they say, but they oftentimes even do weird things to prove their point. The prophet Isaiah, who we're focusing on today, even named his son after the difficult assignment of proclaiming God's judgment on Judah and what would happen to them. That they would be taken captive and taken in exile into a foreign oppressive country. And so he named his son Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So say that three times really fast. I mean, and that's bad enough, but then you can imagine him and his wife going to parties and people kind of sharing their little babies and kind of sharing the stories of what their child's name is and what it means. And they would hear that from each other. And one parent says, well, my son's name is Aaron. It means high mountain or exalted. Another would say, well, my son's name is Andrew, and that means manly or masculine. Or my son's name is David, which means beloved. Or somebody might say, well, my my son, this is my son, and his name is Isaac. It means he will laugh or he will rejoice. And then they say, hey, hey, Isaiah, what's your son's name? And and what does it mean? And then he would say, well, my son's name is Maher Shalal Hashbaz, and it means swift to plunder and quick to carry away. That's awkward. So the prophet Isaiah said many things, and in Isaiah 40, for instance, I've often uh, joked about this, that he even said that Saskatchewan is God's country. You know that, right? It's in the Bible. And I've often shared this with people, especially who live in BC when I lived there. Um, but yeah, I think it's here. You know, he, he, here's the proof. He says this in Isaiah 40, listen, it's the voice of someone shouting, clear the way through the wilderness. For the Lord. Make a straight highway through the wasteland for our God. Fill in the valleys and level the mountains and hills. Straighten the curves and smooth out the rough places. Then the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together. The Lord has spoken. Amen? Yeah, see? Saskatchewan. It's right there. Okay, that's bad interpretation. In case you didn't know that. Okay, that's just more fun that way. Um, But the prophets were important to God. They were used by God for great purposes. They called people back to God and and pointed people oftentimes to the natural result of their choices, to the consequences that were going to be coming. So prophets oftentimes were people who they just can see further down the road and they would just say to people, look, you know that the choices that you're making today are going to lead you here. And so they would connect choices and consequences for people. And they would give counsel to kings. And they would give counsel to the people of God, whether it was the northern kingdom of Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah. And there's different prophets for different kings and different kingdoms. Megan Larissa Good uh, calls them the ultimate outsiders. And she says, as they gave the counsel to the kings, they were people who really didn't want to hear what they had to say. Because they operated outside of the formal power structures of the institution or of the monarchy structures or whatever structures that they had at that time. 
They spoke to the general public, but again, they mostly spoke to leaders of the north and the south. And these were a people that were to be committed in the old covenant to God through the Mosaic law. And so the prophets would call people back to that covenant. And that's what they did. And that covenant involved judgment if they didn't follow that covenant. And so they called people back to that and they linked this choice and consequences piece again. And so they were not the most popular people. They were often seen as odd people. And even today in modern times, we're we're often unsure with what to do with people who have prophetic giftings that we often even hesitate to call prophets. But they are they're here among us today, and, and people who have a different kind of role than the Old Testament prophets did in many ways, but they, they play some similar roles as well. So in Ephesians 4, this text that we might be familiar with, if, you're, if you've grown up in the church, and it talks about spiritual gifts, and one of the things that it talks about in Ephesians 4 is what we sometimes refer to as the apest gifts, the apostle, uh, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher. And it talks about these gifts and how they are there to function and to release the other gifts in the church and they play an important role. So one way you might think about it is, is that the apostles are all about God's mission. So the apostles are all about God's mission in the world and that's what they focus on. The evangelists are all about the transforming message of the gospel. And so that's what they focus on. The shepherds are people who care about the people. They're all about the people of God. And then the teachers are all about explaining the story of God. And then the prophets are people who are just all about God. And and what I mean by that is that they are people who are just continually passionate about calling people back to God. And so even today, people with prophetic giftings, and some of you have these giftings, they're continually churning with this holy discontent inside of them, having this fierce loyalty and faithfulness to God above all else. Guardians of the covenant relationship. Now the new covenant relationship between us and Jesus. But, but guardians of this covenant relationship that God has with his people and passionately concerned with living a morally consistent lifestyle with the covenant. They have this ability to fearlessly proclaim God's truth so that people are encouraged, challenged, convicted, comforted in a timely way. So some of you, you know this, you feel it, you, you have it in your heart, you've got some of these giftings, and there's this holy discontent that you're never sure what exactly to do with, and so those giftings, as they are expressed in the church today, can also be a gift. But as much as the ancient prophets often spoke God's judgment on Israel and Judah, and they would connect this choice and consequences thing, and, and they would proclaim some of these harsh words of judgments, they were also incredible at painting a beautiful picture of the kingdom of God. And prophets have the ability to lift our eyes beyond our circumstances, beyond what's right in front of us, and to help us see what is further out on the horizon in God's kingdom. And they also help us to see more of God's kingdom right in the here and now. And they give us these beautiful glimpses into a different kind of kingdom. And sometimes you might call them the the kingdom of great reversals. That is, is just really different from what we would expect. And so it's kind of like a reversal from the, the norm. And so they, they point us to these kingdoms, just as the prophet, as we're going to see today in Isaiah, does that as well. They point to a kingdom of light and hope in the midst of darkness and, and despair. And, and so theirs is a call to listen. Theirs is a call to pay attention. And so let's listen to some of the kingdom language that the prophet Isaiah calls us to see and to hear and to pay attention to. I want to start in Isaiah 
uh, chapter 2, and we'll look there for a minute. And, and, and these kind of begin some of these great reversal prophetic words that we might think of them that way to a radically different kind of kingdom. And I'll try to do a better job of interpretation than I did with Isaiah 40. So he says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's house will be the highest call, the most important place on earth. It will be raised above the other hills, and the people from all over the world will stream towards the mountain to worship. People from many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob's God, and there he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. What's, what's interesting about this imagery that Isaiah speaks about here is that, again, it's a, a reversal. If you think of mountains and mountain streams, I mean, does the stream go towards the mountain or away from the mountain? I mean, it goes away from the mountain because we know that water starts to flow down the mountain. It goes into the rivers and it goes into eventually the lakes and so on. And so it streams away from the mountain. And here is this reversal image of these people of God streaming towards this mountain to worship him, to walk in obedience. And you see this multitude of nations and this beautiful picture of God's kingdom of people streaming to this high mountain, this place of God's presence. And then he goes on to say in Isaiah 2 verse 4, he says, the Lord will mediate between nations and will settle international disputes. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will no longer fight against nation nor train for war anymore. And so here we see a second great reversal where we see that this image where nations will exchange or transform their weapons for war, their weapons that are used for violence and destruction, and they will now exchange them and make them into tools for planting and gardening. It's a completely different image. And now these, these same weapons that were once used for one thing will now be the very things that help us to plant, as it says in, in the New Testament, of, of putting our roots into the soil of God's love. And it gives this gardening image of what will happen there, and it's this great reversal that Isaiah is pointing to. Instead of evil and violence, there will be peace. And it sounds great, but I think for the people of Judah, they would have thought, boy, this doesn't happen much. They knew a lot of violence and war. That's what they knew. As we look around our world today, we go, wow, that's a great image, but we don't always see that much or even necessarily experience it in our relationships all the time. There's just seems to be always so much conflict and challenge. But the prophets, they lift their eyes, don't they? And so we wait And we pay attention and we're called to anticipate. We hope, we trust, and we listen. Even when the evidence of what is being proclaimed and pictured isn't there. And it's called faith. And it's trusting in God that God has got a bigger kingdom purpose for even what we're going through. And that what we're experiencing right now or what we're maybe just seeing right in front of us isn't all that there is. That there's way more going on. And so the prophets lift our eyes and help us to see beyond the immediate. And that's what Advent is about. It's not just waiting and listening, but seeing beyond what we know and experience right now. Then let's move on to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6 to 9. He gives another picture of a great reversal. He says, In that day the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion. And a little child will lead them. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes, a little child will put its hand in the nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy, and all my holy mountain 
For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. And, and these, these images here in this section, I mean, these are images that we intuitively know just don't make any sense. I mean, they don't make any sense in, our, in what we understand of the natural order of things. I mean, a wolf and a lamb together? I don't, I don't think so. A cow near a bear, allowing their calf and their cub to play together? Uh, likely not. Would you let your baby play near the hole of a cobra or a den of snakes? I don't think so. That would be the day that as a parent you would let that happen. But, but here it's just this remarkable picture of peace, of shalom. That beautiful Old Testament word that just means the completeness, the presence of God and completeness, where there's integrity, where all things are together and are at one. And it's different. Like it's this great reversal image that the prophet Isaiah is pointing us to. It's not just the end of hostilities, but it's the, the unification of all that has been previously divided and separated. And it even gives this little teaser in there, and I love that line. It says, a little child will lead them. It's this remarkable future picture of Christ's return and a, a literal new heaven and new earth over which Christ will reign. And we only get glimpses of it now, don't we? But it's here. This kingdom is here all the same because Jesus Christ is on his throne. And it's this kingdom that is here and now, but it is also yet to come. And so these are the pictures of Isaiah that he paints for us. And one, one commentator says it this way about this passage. Isaiah's message directs our faith to a future in which justice will prevail, in which creation will be restored and universal peace will be established. Advent heightens this hope and impels us to journey together with Emmanuel on this holy of ways. And then we come to the most remarkable, maybe nonsensical reversal of them all, where God challenges King Ahaz, as we see in Isaiah chapter 7. But King Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, and they are being oppressed by all of these surrounding nations. And God actually challenges Ahaz to ask him for a sign. And God challenges him to ask him for a sign that he will protect him and rescue him from the invading armies that are bent on destroying him. And it's interesting, God even, if you read the text, God even taunts him. And he says, make it as hard as you want. And he's asking Ahaz for, to ask him, God, for a sign. And Ahaz, I mean, he, he has the fear of the Lord in him, and he is just too fearful to even ask, and he can't do it. And so then Isaiah says this. God says himself, he says, all right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And he says, look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And so this is one of the great promises and truths of God's incredible story. That not only do we have a God who is for us, but that we have a God himself who is with us. The all-powerful, all-good, all-caring one is able and willing to enter into a fully personal relationship with each and every one of us. And he shows it in the most remarkable, upside-down, nonsensical way you can imagine. Not a warrior on a horse, but a baby born among the animals. And so again, it's just this incredible picture of a very different kind of kingdom. Which is what the prophets do, is they always unsettle us. And it unsettles us from what is normal and what we expect to something quite unexpected. And that's what the kingdom of God is about. When we think that, well, the natural result of this direction will be this, and God breaks in and does something remarkably different. 
And now His Spirit has been given to us as we receive Jesus into our lives and God continues to be with us. I mean, He first of all came in the form of this baby and walked and lived among us to die on a cross and to be buried in a grave and to raise again. And then He leaves us with His Spirit as the God who is continually with us. Emmanuel. So Advent calls us to wait. Advent calls us to wait for all of this to be fulfilled in its fullness. To listen, to pay attention to God, to see and explore more of His kingdom right now, and then to celebrate this baby Jesus and all that it means. And this last image that I want to look at in Isaiah is from Isaiah chapter 9, and it contains some of the verses that we often read at Christmas time, which give us this picture of who Jesus is. But I want to read it uh, a little bit more in context from Isaiah 9, verse 1 to 7. And let's listen to this passage that points us to Jesus. And Isaiah says, Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. And the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who live in a land of deep darkness, a light will shine. You will enlarge the nation of Israel, and its people will rejoice They will rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest and like warriors dividing the plunder. For you will break the yoke of their slavery and lift the heavy burdens from their shoulders. You will break the oppressor's rod just as you did when you destroyed the army of Midian. The boots of the warrior and the uniforms bloodstained by war will all be burned. They will be fuel for the fire. For a child is born to us. A son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. His government and His peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of His ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So why do we, why do we keep telling these ancient stories? As we come into the Advent season and Christmas time, we, we continue to tell these ancient stories over and over again. Advent is, is filled, as a season of the Christian calendar, is filled with these stories that are rich stories of God, ancient stories of God. And, and for some of you, they're just kind of confusing stories that you don't really know what to do with and don't fully understand them. And, and for others of us, we maybe have just heard them so often that they start to lose their meaning. And they start to become stories that are just kind of like white noise that we have become maybe too familiar with and they lose their impact. But stories matter because, you see, stories carry our theology. Stories help us to understand who God is and who we are and in relation to God and and our place in the world. Stories inspire us. They instruct us. They give us mental images. They tell us what's foundational and important in a family or in a culture. And so we need to pay attention to the stories and also keep retelling these stories. Parents uh, who have young children, they know this. I remember when our kids were young and our kids liked to be told the same stories over and over again, right? And uh, you might have your few books that you read and you pull out and you don't even really need the books anymore because you know the story off by heart, but you pull out the same book because your child wants that story again and so you lay down in bed beside them and you read this story and you tell it over and over again. And what's so fascinating to me is that the kids, they... They would, you know, laugh at all the funny parts and they would get all tense at all the the nervous parts and they would, you know, shout with delight at all the celebratory parts, even though they know exactly what's coming, right? 
And in our household with our kids, one of the favorite books of the favorite stories was we're going on a bear hunt. See, some of you know that story. And we would pull out that book all the time, and it's like, we're going on a bear hunt. We're going to catch a big one. I'm not scared. And then you would tell the story, and you'd come upon all these obstacles, and you would say, okay, well, we came upon a swamp. Well, we can't go over it, can't go under it, got to go through it. And then you'd make all these noises, and then you go to the next thing, and then you go through one obstacle after another, and at the end of it, you have this bear, and then the bear chases you, and you scare your kids, and they yell and scream, and it's wonderful. And you kind of go, well, didn't you see that coming? You know the story. I mean, you know it off the heart. But it's important to just retell the stories. And in a similar way, when we, we come to Advent, they might be stories that we're really familiar with. But they're still important stories for us to tell and to retell. Steve Bell is a musician that many of you know. He's a poet and a writer, and he's written an Advent devotional book. And he, he talks about this a bit, and he says, We need to come to Advent with the same childlike faith and anticipation for the familiar stories of God breaking into the world. We need, we need to do that and retell these stories. Because you see, the church needs to tell and retell her sacred stories year after year in a similar way as a parent with a child asking for the same story every night continues to tell those stories. Because like any good child story, they reward well into adulthood. And each time we rehearse and retell and rework these stories, we unearth some things that are new precisely because there is so much more to receive. But we also re unearth some things that are new because our capacity to receive has deepened as we walk with God more. And so Christian believers through the ages are keepers of the story. And we tend it like a fire in the darkest nights and we live by its blaze and glory during the day. And you know, there is no greater story that we can tell than this most remarkable of stories of a God who breaks into the world and who comes to rescue us in our darkness and bring us hope and light that changes everything. So I want to conclude by returning to where we began this morning in the text in 2 Peter chapter 1. This beautiful text and testimony of Peter. And often we've talked about this difference between testimony and proclamation and how testimony is our own personal story and of what God is doing in our life and proclamation is the story of what God has done in the world and through the course of history. And, and Peter says at the beginning of this passage that was read earlier at the beginning of the service, Peter says, you know what, we're not making up these stories. Like people, you need to understand that these stories are true because we witnessed them. We saw Jesus. We touched Him. We saw Him crucified, buried, and rose again. We experienced it personally, so it's real. We heard the voice of God ourselves with our own ears. And so that's what he's saying. He's saying, we, we encountered Jesus. We encountered God Himself. And it changed us. And that's what Peter's saying at the beginning of this, and he's, he's just so passionately speaking about this that he's, as he's personalizing his own story and his own experience with God. But then he goes on to say this in verse 19, because of that experience, their own personal experiences, we have even greater confidence in the message proclaimed up by the, by the prophets. You must pay close attention to what they wrote, for their words are like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and, and Christ the morning star shines in your hearts. And he says that because of their own personal experience, the words that the ancient prophets wrote, even for Peter, became alive. Like they just came to life because he was able to give testimony that they were true. And he says these things that even they, so many centuries ago for us, but that they were 
hearing so many centuries before for him from these prophets, like they were, they were saying, these words are true because we've experienced them. We've encountered Jesus, just like the prophet said we would. And so it changes him, and it's transforming him in a remarkable way. And here's the thing. We, we too can do that. We too can experience that. And when our story intersects with God's story, it leads to transformation. When we understand more and more God's story, which is why we need to keep retelling these ancient stories, so that they become so familiar to us that we start to recognize more and more of our own testimony, our own personal interaction, our own encounter with Jesus in our own lives, and it starts to change us. Because we believe, because we've experienced, just like Peter did. And so this text is such a powerful testimony of what happens when these stories collide and transformation happens and we start to see our own story in light of what God has done. It's remarkable. And that's what we celebrate and do during this Advent season as we anticipate the Christmas season of God coming among us. And God changes us. And light comes into darkness in those moments. So I want to say to you, if God is whispering to you today, listen. If God is revealing Himself to you today, respond. If God is knocking on the door of your darkness, let the light in. Pay attention. Because the King and His kingdom is here. I want to conclude in prayer. And what I'd like to do as I pray is I would invite if some of you would like to just particularly acknowledge to God that you are longing for this and that you are waiting in that way. That you would actually just stand right where you are and I want to pray specifically for you if that is your, the cry of your heart today. That you would respond and receive what God has for you this morning. This morning. So I'm going to invite the worship team if they would come up. But if you would like to just respond in this way, would you just stand where you are? And I want to pray. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that you invite us to respond just as Peter responded. That as we encounter you, you enter into our lives and when our story intersects with your story, by the power of your Holy Spirit, it changes us. And Lord, I pray particularly for these people who are standing here today that you, by your Spirit, would just be so awakened in them. Spirit of God, God with us, that you would enter into their lives and the particular needs, hurts, struggles, pains, hopes, aspirations in ways that are transforming. And God, would you continue to transform us as a people. And Lord, I thank you for the call that you continually give us to respond. And even as these people have responded, Lord, we just join with them and we pray and we cry out, God, would you change us, transform us, awaken us. We long for more of you. And so, Lord, we thank you so much for your desire to enter into our lives and change us. And we just pray that you would seal the quiet prayers of the hearts of each of these individuals in a really powerful way. And that you would do your transforming work by the power of Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.